Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Nicotine, the drug every smoker and vapor craves for its unique and contradictory ability to provide increasing alertness or sense of relaxation depending on the circumstance it is used. Nicotine has been consumed for thousands of years, yet over the past half century, it has become reviled as a source of addiction contributing to the millions of smoking deaths worldwide each year. Joining us today to get to the bottom of the controversy over nicotine is Dr. Carl Fagerstrom. Since 1975, he's been at the forefront of nicotine research, contributing to the development of popular nicotine replacement therapies like the patch, spray, and gum. Dr. Fagerstrom, let's get started with your background. It's fascinating that you've been basically for decades now kind of at the forefront of nicotine research. Yes, uh, I was actually after my studies interested in drug addicts. So I was working with drug addicts and most of them smoke, as we all know. And we came to talk about smoking and they said to me that it would be as difficult to give up the smoking, which I really would like to do, as to give up the drug, amphetamine or opium or whatever they were using. And I thought that was probably not true, but it get, got me interested into smoking. And uh, in a while I was able to set up a smokers clinic uh, in a hospital. And that's where I found out that they were true. It is as difficult to give up smoking as it is to give up with more so-called hard drugs. And that was my beginning of it all. So it is indeed as difficult. The results, if you look at six months after the start of a therapy or one year, they are pretty much the same with alcohol, tobacco or other drugs. Yes, the relapse rate is about the same. You end up with something like 5, 10, 15, up to 20 percent maybe in the very, very best treatment. So what does that exactly mean? Like since the Surgeon General's report in 1988, which was groundbreaking report in the U.S., and he came out and he basically made that comment that there was a connection between the kind of dependence of nicotine and heroin and cocaine. But with inside the vaping community, the harm reduction community, there's quite a bit of, uh, quite a bit of pushback on that. Yes, indeed. Um, many were quite happy to see that uh, the dependence to nicotine at the time was so well recognized because at the time, it was mostly considered being a bad habit, uh, and, and, and the habit was the, what was made it difficult to give up. But those of us who were a little deeper into it, we understand that there was a pharmacological dependence involved also, which was very much recognized in the Surgeon General's report. But uh, nicotine, yes, it, it can be very dependence-producing, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. It depends on the administration form, the behavior that goes with it, etc. And to some extent, the same could be said be true for, for opioids also. Many of us are using opioids sometimes uh, during our life when the drug comes to us. We are sick, we have pain, and when the drug comes to us, that is something very different when you seek up the drug, because when you seek up the drug, you do so because you are in a bad circumstance, you are in a psychological, psychiatric crisis, and then it has another effect than if you are, so to say, speak well psychically. So... Dr. Fagerstrom, one of the things that I was hoping to do today was destigmatize nicotine, but I think that's going to be a little bit more complicated uh, now hearing as starting the show off with this. So let me ask you, um, 
With regards to nicotine, though, I mean, a lot of people believe that, say, for instance, heroin or cocaine coming off the withdrawal symptoms, you know, you're shivering, you're, you're sweats, like life threatening kinds of withdrawal. Is that the same then with nicotine? The acute withdrawal symptoms are much worse with opiates than with nicotine. But so then you might ask, so how can it be equally difficult then? The trouble is that with smoking, it is, has been at least socially approved and relatively normal. You have been smoking in most of the situations in your life when you are a drug user. It's confined to much narrower environments. And drug users can tell that I have been off for a year, fine, no real problems. Then I came back to the block and the places where I used to take the drug. And I got this craving, this irresistible craving. Uh, but it's easier to avoid that with, with other drugs. But nicotine, you can't. You see people smoking, you feel the smell of smoking, and with the conditioned urges, there are much more situations where you can uh, relapse. So that uh, answers uh, the problem why it's uh, about as difficult to give up. It doesn't necessarily have to be very dependence-producing. It's like uh, in the Andes, in the Southern America, you have had coca tea, that has not been very dependence producing. Uh, a nicotine patch, I have never heard of anyone getting dependent to, to nicotine when it's given across the skin as, as with a patch. Also the nicotine replacement formulations, nicotine gum. People are not using it long enough, enough per day because it's not rewarding enough. The cigarette is quite another thing where you, after you inhale, you have the molecule in the brain after some 10, 15 seconds, and it goes much faster. And in order to get dependent on anything, you need a subjective effect. And the subjective effect will not be elicited unless you have a fast uptake, so the brain doesn't have the time to defend itself against the, the imbalance in the systems. It's notable that if you if you do an experiment with smokers and, and the heavy smokers, and it doesn't need to be heavy smokers, smokers in general, and you, they are abstinent overnight, so they come to a laboratory in the morning and they have a craving for a cigarette, and then you give them the option of a nicotine-containing gum or a nicotine-free cigarette. The large majority, they go for a nicotine-free cigarette. And they also report that the craving is much better relieved by a nicotine-free cigarette than a nicotine gum. And you can also see interesting things if you do imaging of the brain, that you have larger effects from a non-nicotine cigarette than a nicotine gum. So it's more than the drug. There is a lot of conditioning here. And that's the hand to mouth and the social situation and everything else that we know so well with regards to smoking. Absolutely. This is very, very important. The more behavior that goes with the nicotine, the more likely you are to be dependent. There are more behavior means more hooks, actually. Mm -hmm. 
And you can also see that with smokeless tobacco, which we have a lot of in Sweden, yes, you can get dependent on smokeless tobacco, but to a lesser degree than smoking. And nicotine replacement products, there is very unusual to get dependent on this, but you can, but then it's mostly mouth spray or nasal spray, which is a bit of a faster uptake than you have from lozenges and gums. How does uh, vaping, electronic cigarettes, fit in in the continuum there of nicotine use? Uh, vaping is also not producing the same dependence as traditional cigarettes, uh, but it's probably on the same level as smokeless tobacco, because again, nicotine is coming relatively quickly to the brain, uh, but you do not have the same sensory effects of vaping in the mouth, in the upper respiratory tract. And uh, nicotine in traditional cigarettes also have some reflex effects where uh, they act on sensory neurons in the upper respiratory tract. So you have effects in the brain actually before it is possible to go to the brain with the blood circulation. Could you define for our audience what the term clean nicotine means? Clean nicotine to me means that it has been chemically refined and cleaned out of all other substances. So it's usually 99% just nicotine and 1% of, of, of other material that hasn't been able to be cleaned off. Often, uh, vapors and those in the tobacco harm reduction community will rely on that label of clean nicotine as you know, a positive benefit around its use. Is that, um, is that overestimating uh, the safety? No, it's not. Clean is pharmaceutical grade nicotine, which means that it is uh, cleaned up as much as you possibly can. That means also that what is normally in tobacco is tobacco specific nitrosamines, which might uh, increase the likelihood of getting cancer. And you do not have that in clean nicotine. There might be a little, little bit of some heavy metals which come from the soil where, where it's grown. The rest, apart from nicotine, is in any way in such minute concentrations that it can't be harmful for the body. It cannot be. Cannot be. You know, there's been a real demonization of nicotine that's happened in the last, you know, 50 years. Give us some reflections on what you've seen over the past decades in terms of the battle against nicotine. And what are your thoughts on that? When I was young, I think like many others, saw that drug, drugs in general, uh, I mean, mean uh, opioids, amphetamine, cocaine, etc. we don't need that. We need to fight this, to fight it the best we can. But I have think I think I have realized that most, if not all, cultures have what I call cultural drugs. For us, they have been coffee, alcohol, and tobacco or nicotine. And to get rid of drugs is really something extremely, extremely difficult. We have no good examples. I mean, from the US, we had the war against drugs started by President Nixon in 1971, I think it was. 
and that has created a lot of deaths, counted in hundred thousands. And it's a little bit like some other problems which I don't want to get into that as long as paradise isn't happening on the earth, I think we have to realize that some people are not exactly happy all the time and they need something. And uh, nicotine comes in there as a, as a relatively handy thing. The administration form in form of a cigarette is unfortunately the dirtiest administration form you can think of. Thousands of different substances and maybe 60, 70, 80 of them cancerogenic. So the thing is to get away with these substances. It would be like coffee. We do not discuss coffee very much because although it is dependence producing, but it isn't, I mean, leading to much death and disease at all. If you were to smoke coffee to get it into your body, it would be the same as tobacco and cigarettes, but there is a cleaner administration form. And if we can clean up the need for nicotine to give it in as clean nicotine as possible, I think nicotine would come re relatively close to caffeine in terms of morbidity, mortality and a burden on society and be certainly much better than alcohol. The funny thing which is happening and particularly in Northern America is that nicotine, as you said, has been so demonized and the pressure is so strong and the usage is going down. What is going up? What is going up? Cannabis use. Is cannabis in any way taking the kind of void that results after the demonization of, of, of tobacco and nicotine? So basically, I, I think that we, at least myself, I give an up on a completely drug free society. We hear this a lot that nicotine is carcinogenic. It causes cancer. Does it? No, it, no, it, it doesn't. And here I can speak. And I think that's the best evidence we have from uh, smokeless tobacco. We call it snooze, the particulars. British form, which, by the way, was the first product that got the license as a mod risk modification, MRTP, modified risk tobacco product by FDA, because it doesn't cause cancer. It doesn't cause cardiovascular effects like myocardial infarction and stroke. And we have plenty of epidemiological studies in Sweden showing that we cannot find in good control studies that it does. That is not to exclude that for single individuals with a particular makeup, it could, but uh, it can't be documented in big studies. So is this a claim, which you see all the time with those that are trying to demonize vaping, is this a claim that's valid scientifically or is it something that should be stopped? This is not valid scientifically. There is a lot of thing which uh, is not the truth what we hear in this area. And that I think goes back to the behavior of the tobacco industry, which was so really bad that no one could actually but think they are bastards. And therefore today, it's very difficult for a scientist, including myself, to do a study and finding something which can speak for nicotine or for tobacco. The reviewers of the paper, they will 
uh, go down and it immediately and scrutinize that because it's supposed to be cannot be sympathetic towards the tobacco industry. I think that is the problem that we, we do not dare to speak the truth here. There is a group pressure that everyone must bash the tobacco industry. And it has no political or any other uh, reward to say something which the tobacco industry could make use of. Are scientists and researchers being shunned, blacklisted or otherwise ostracized for studying nicotine or other tobacco harm reduction products? Science should be judged on its merits. The fact should speak for themselves. That's not the case with the, with the papers that deals with tobacco and nicotine. Many journals, most of the good journals, they have actually banned papers where there has been any form of support from the tobacco industry. You are not allowed to uh, uh, register for conferences. Uh, you are not allowed to be part in, in task groups, etc. if you have had uh, funding from tobacco industry or have connections with tobacco industry. This is about our fourth episode here in a row where we've been really trying to tackle this issue. We had uh, Dr. Derek Yak on from uh, the Foundation for a Smoke-Free World. We just had Clive Bates on. Clive, one of the things that he was you know, really getting behind is that there is this irreconcilable conflict principle at the heart of tobacco control and i.e. the WHO and the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control in Article 5.3. And basically this, this whole concept that's ingrained in, in public health, that the interests of public health are irreconcilable with the interests of the tobacco industry. What do you think about that? I think that the main objective that most of us that were interested in this area some 30, 40 years ago was to deal with the excess morbidity and mortality that went with tobacco. And that's usually what you do in medicine. And if you cannot cure, at least you try, try to reduce the suffering. But over time, for very many, and particularly those in the public health field, it has, the, the, the objective has been to down the tobacco industry, to make them bankrupt and get out of business. And um, that doesn't seem to be a, a goal that is actually helping the public health and certainly not the smokers, and it may not be achievable altogether. They seem to survive and strive as well as they had for 20, 30 years ago. How damaging then is the WHO's position and tobacco control's position with regards to nicotine research and uh, harm reduction research? I mean, is it harming people? Uh, definitely, at least short term, it's harming people since it, uh, it arrests people from finding less harmful alternatives. But what the supporters of WHO will, will probably say is that we don't want any nicotine at all. And the, if the answer to that question is that yes, it's possible to get rid of nicotine and tobacco altogether, then it might actually be a way forward to be against harm reduction. Because if harm reduction is carried out, there will be less pressure 
to get rid of the products. However, if the question, if the answer to the question is that no, I don't think we can get rid of tobacco and nicotine in all forms, then it follows quite naturally that we have to give it in a in a safer way. Again, returning to coffee, in my youth, we boiled the coffee. I'm sure you at some time might have boiled coffee in Northern America also. Scientists found out that there were some acids creating with the boiling yeah, that were bad for the cardiovascular system. So we turned to fil fil filtering the coffee and using other uh, ways of, of, of preparing it. You, the same is true for, for nicotine, but I think they have an over-optimistic belief in that we can get rid of this kind of drug altogether. Do they want to get rid of the drug because the drug in and of itself inherently has, you know, the potential to do great harm? Or is it that it's so intrinsically linked to combustible tobacco that the only way to get rid of tobacco is to just get rid of nicotine and don't allow any nicotine use at all? Don't allow. I mean, here, I mean, with the hard drugs, we don't allow hard drugs. We still have hard drugs and they serve as a base for organized crime, etc., etc. And if we were to uh, ban all tobacco, there would be a black market, I'm sure, as with other drugs. Dr. Fagerstrom, one of the things that we hear often is that, of course, as you mentioned, the tobacco industry was pretty nefarious for a good long time. And this is what tobacco control was fighting. But yet now it seems almost that tobacco control is using the tobacco industry's playbook in which to fight against these uh, less harmful alternatives. Unfortunately, yeah, I, I, I see it the same way. They concentrate on things that looks bad for the product, the industry, if they find something that could look the other way around, they don't attend to it, they forget it, or they hide it. And uh, so, the, and, and normally this would not work because you have reviewers that should scrutinize the papers. But reviewers, they are not brave enough to come back and say, you need to bring this up if it speaks for something good for the tobacco industry. Then they keep quiet. They, they maybe it's not. Uh, they are not aware of their reasoning either. It sits so deep in the backbone that. Uh, the, the, now this is very sorry. I mean, I have been at meetings myself and been called up to stand up. Here we have the guy that say this and that good things about nicotine. I was elected chair of the Northern American Society for, uh, research, uh, Society for Research on Nicotine and Tobacco. And then at the inauguration, someone found out that I uh, talked with Swedish Match, a company that uh, manufactures this news. So I had to decline. So this is the simple thing. This is how it works. Was it always like that or has it gotten worse? No, it wasn't always like this. Uh, I think something around in the 90s it started, but it has escalated. The e-cigarettes is a telling story here also. When they started to come out, there was a curiosity and an openness to e-cigarettes and, and probably also an acceptance that they could be part of a harm reduction uh, plan. 
Then the tobacco industry bought up the e-cigarette industry and then people turned against e-cigarettes, which tells me that what they really are against, that is the tobacco industry. And unfortunately, not do not care for the masses that are using tobacco and particularly cigarettes. Basically, what you're saying to me is that these researchers and the journals and the reviewers and just the infrastructure around tobacco control has placed politics or ideology over science. Yes, 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 very much. That, that's a very, very good summary of it all. Yes, it's ideology. And, and it, it comes almost close to religious beliefs nowadays, unfortunately. Isn't science supposed to be shielded from ideology? Isn't that the whole point of the scientific method? Absolutely. Absolutely. But unfortunately, that's not the case here. Smoking is, of course, also a phenomenon that is everyone has seen, everyone can have an opinion on it. It's not about the sophisticated uh, space uh, physics or something which is impo Im impossible for people on the street uh, to have an opinion on. So uh, here, I have been a smoker myself. I, I know I had a sister been smoking. You, you are, are part of the debate in the society. It, it's easy to have an opinion. And the scientists which have studied this in a better degree, they don't have the normal advantage to a regular citizen like it would be in most other sciences. What we haven't been discussed here, but what I, I think is a major reason that more science, more data will not solve this problem is the lack of trust which there is between the more close to data, data-driven scientists and the public health advocates. There is a, a canyon of mistrust in between the two camps. And before the science will have any bearing, this cliff, this canyon of, 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 of distrust must be mended in some way or another. And what I'm doing here and what you you are doing sending this out, I, I hope could at least a little bit contribute to bringing the two camps a little bit closer together and that people will understand what is facts and what is belief and religion. So you're drawing a, a separation then between data-driven science and public health? Yeah. Of course, it's an over-exaggeration to say that everyone in public health isn't a good scientist. But I would say it looks to me like those, the basic scientists and the behavioral laboratory scientists, they are not the big problem here. It is, yeah, actually, it's not so much the scientists as the anti-tobacco people without the scientific degree that still are very open to get into uh, papers and uh, and becoming widely broadcasted. Uh, and, and, and sometimes it's quite understand, uh, understandable because their father died in 
in, in lung cancer from smoking, they have a mother smoking, it smells very bad, etc., etc. And this fuels uh, uh, anti-feeling. And what has happened also over the 20, last 10 years or so, is that there is funding. I mean, in almost every federal state now, you have you have positions for anti-tobacco people, so you could earn your living. And then, of course, you must make sure that this continues to be seen as a big problem, so you can rectify the funding for what you are doing. So you are quite famous, in a way, for creating a diagnostic tool around the dependence of nicotine. And I know that for a fact that even in my local Shoppers Drug Mart here in Vancouver, British Columbia, it's up on their website. What What is this tool? And tell our audience about how it came about. Yes, it so came about that in 1975, I opened my smokers clinic and I started to see smokers. And at that time, we really thought that this was a bad habit and not much about the pharmacological dependence. However, I more or less immediately saw that this doesn't fit with being just a behavioral dependence. There must be a pharmacological dependence here. So therefore, I felt the need to diagnose the smokers according to how much is the pharmacological part playing out here uh, compared to the behavioral part. And then I asked myself, so what would characterize someone dependent on a drug? And the drug was nicotine. I was uh, relatively aware of that at least. Uh, and uh, then I came up with uh, the questions. I'm not going to go through all of them, but the, the most important one was fairly easy to come up with. And that is since nicotine is getting cleaned out of the body very soon. When you wake up in the morning, you don't have any pharmacological active levels of nicotine in your bloodstream. So you would be in withdrawal. And therefore, the first question was, how soon after you wake up do you smoke? And if you can go several hours, that is a very different thing than the first thing what you do when you get up after five minutes or something, light the cigarette. Measuring dependence isn't really possible. This is an indication of dependence. As everything, when we come to behavioral and psychiatry, you don't look at the cell, you don't take a blood sample and see if you have a depression, etc. It's subjective scales that we are using here. And that's the same here with dependence. And if you know that someone is more heavily dependent, then you need, we, at that time also I was having access to nicotine replacement. The, the gum was the first product. The gum came in two and four milligram. So the four milligram was for the more dependent and the two milligram for the less dependent. And that's the way it has been used in, in many ways and for FDA, et cetera, to distinguish the strength of the medications. Now, has your index ever been applied to vaping or is there just too many different varieties of products to really have a number? Uh, it has in a modified version, yes. It needs to be modified for every other administration form because the dependence differ to administration forms. With smokeless tobacco, for example, you have no behavior and with patch, you have no behavior, one in the morning when you put it on and take the other one off. Uh, 
So it can be used, but it has to be adapted to other forms of use. The dependence to electronic cigarette is not at the same degree as with traditional cigarettes. It seems to be a little less. Uh, the behavior is very close, so I mean it shouldn't be far away, but uh, most of the e-cigarettes, they do not deliver nicotine as fast and efficient as traditional cigarettes, with the exception of Yule. But Yule is becoming modified, I think, also now, so it isn't as effective as it used to be. Uh, but uh, it, I, I really can't say a, a particular point or, or a score. Uh, the average score of a Northern American smoker, and talking about adults here, is usually around five. But when I developed the scale, it was lower. So what seemed to have happened when the smoking prevalence has gone down in all of the Western countries at least, is that the remaining smokers seem to be a bit more dependent and thus having probably more difficulties to give up also. What role did you play in the battle to legitimate snooze? My current interest is mainly around this new non-tobacco oral pouches. You see, I started a company myself in 2003, Nikon Orban, which later was bought by Reynolds Company in the US, which was a surprise, but uh, that, that happened. And the first product that I developed there was actually a pouched product, like a small tea bag with pharmaceutical grade nicotine bound to microcrystalline cellulose. And this is now what the tobacco industry is developing. And to me, these products in the US, they are called Sin, On, uh, Drift, and maybe something more also. And these products are almost identical to the NRT product that I produced, uh, uh, which is licensed as a medicine in, in Europe. So it will be very interesting to see what the anti-tobacco people can say about a product like that, when it is so close to uh, FDA-approved nicotine replacement products. And, and this, I think, shows that the tobacco industry have understood the problem and is starting to clean up their delivery system as much as they can. They still sell a dependence-producing drug, and there are adolescents and young adults that starts with it. Yes, that's unfortunately the case. But again, as with cultural drugs, uh, they will probably take to something else. And, uh, and alcohol isn't that much discussed, but that also probably is needed in the society. Some are uh, suffering from it, of course, but others find it as a grease in their social relationships and in their way to be able to function, etc. And, and, and the same, I, I think we can't get away with nicotine. So if you get down to products of this kind and magnitude of, of harm. So let me bring it back here to, um, to public health. In your estimation, do you think public health is being honest with the public with regard to relative risks around tobacco harm reduction? No, no. 
by no means. Uh, this is this is very sad that the truth cannot be spoken. And and it's also fascinating that you see regulatory authorities, uh, one in North America, that in uh, in talks they give at conferences, they seem to acknowledge that there is a continuum of harm. But when FDA speaks as an agency, you do not hear that. You do not hear that at all. And uh, when you get a modified risk tobacco product order, like in the FDA, uh, saying that this is less harmful than smoking cigarettes, you wouldn't think that you should also have warnings on the package at the same time, because that creates an ambivalence. But uh, it's, it's very difficult to speak the truth here, because you will be accused. You will be accused. Everyone is, uh, is aware of that. What have been the ramifications of being accused? You are frozen out from your peer group, uh, more difficult to get uh, funding for your research, to be asked for, to give talks and to get to honorable positions, etc. You've built a career on studying nicotine. How does that make you feel to have, you know, later in your career to all of a sudden see the science, the, the openness to real science be closed? In the beginning of my career, it was possible to interact with, I would say, everyone interested in the area. Today, we have been split in, in quarters, at least two quarters, uh, where there is very little communication across this very big uh, canyon, as I say, between. And, and that creates the distrust, which makes science go nowhere because uh, science isn't believed. It's believed to be manipulated and modified. And um, I wish I had a solution to put forward to this, uh, but I, I, I don't. Would, it, would a solution start with, say, a modification at the World Health Organization with their approach towards tobacco harm reduction? Uh, that would be nice, but I mean, that's easier said than done. I mean, those who would like to speak are probably not invited uh, to the meetings. Uh, I mean, these meetings are also closed. And uh, I have, for example, never been asked to come to any of the meetings, even if dependence has been discussed where I could consider myself as, as an expert. But uh, my background isn't good enough for that. It's a soiled background. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The smokeless tobacco products, you know, certainly have a lot of people really behind it. And the fact is, is that globally, while the problem in North America might be shoved to the corner and some progress has certainly been made, it really is globally where the tobacco epidemic um, is really taking its toll. And aren't smokeless tobacco products actually a, a real boon to help fight that? It, it could be, but uh, there are different smokeless tobaccos also. 
if you say smoke less tobacco is harmful, smoke less tobacco is causing cancer. That is true. It's absolutely true. Because the Indian smoke less tobacco is very harmful. The smoke less traditional ones in the US was also harmful, although not as harmful. Today, I think the products produced in North America are are much less harmful than they used to be. But the Swedish snus, which is manufactured in a special way, it's pasteurized, for example, so all bacteria is killed before it gets packaged. And then it has to kept, be kept cool until you buy it, so there is no bacteria that can start to thrive and create nitrosamines and other substances. And uh, why the reason that many of us can understand the harms from nicotine is simply the many, many epidemiological studies that we have done in Sweden on snus, which give the consumer as much nicotine as a cigarette smoker. And we do not see even mouth cancer. No, there is no increase in mouth cancer or any other cancer. We do not see any increase in, as I mentioned, myocardial infarction or stroke, the most two most common. What can happen there, to be frank, is that if you anyway get a myocardial infarction, it can be a bit worse than if you hadn't been using snus. The problem with snus and all nicotine, that is during pregnancy. And there are a lot of things that a pregnant woman should be careful with, certainly alcohol and, and also actually caffeine. But nicotine does have a, a lot of risks from being preterm, both being lighter than normal, having some malfunctions like split lip or whatever, I don't get to the name now. Uh, but that's 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 the main problem, apart from addiction uh, that, that you have. But addiction, yes, certainly, it, it is not the same as complete health. You have a loss of control. But if a product that creates addiction, like caffeine, is not seen as harmful, the addiction capacity or feature also becomes more handleable, I think. Uh, and if you could get away from cigarettes, as much as there is a continuum of harm, there is a continuum of dependence also, with cigarettes in one end and a nicotine patch in the other end. And then you have heat but not burn products, e-cigarettes, smokeless tobacco, nicotine replacement formulations, and, and, and a patch in, in the very end. Now, Dr. Fagerstrom, one of the things that I've often enjoyed saying on our show is that hey you know i've got a mild nicotine habit and i'm happy with it is there anything wrong with a mild nicotine habit it's hard to say that i, I would have no problems with a nicotine habit if we have nicotine in a form which is the least possible harmful the people that are selecting themselves for using that product they might have some problems. And, and today, with the low smoking prevalence, you can be sure that at least 50% of them have some psychiatric problems. And had they had the possibility to use nicotine, maybe then they have had used something else. 
which has been more disturbing for themselves and the society. So that's that's what I would like to say. So I've got here on the lower third of our screen down here, it says destigmatize. Do I need to change the title of this piece or or have we done some destigmatization? No, we do need to destigmatize it. We absolutely do. The prevailing information from society as such, from uh, groups particularly and especially interested in this area, they are not speaking the truth. They are exaggerating and being untruthful. And all I want that is speak the truth, nothing but the truth. And in this case, I think it needs, it's also destigmatizing because it has been stigmatized so much. So part of that need to be going out for the good of many individuals and public health.